And the first passage comes comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 2. And we'll begin um, with verse 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for the pastor appreciation prayer uh, and gift. That means uh, a ton to me, and I uh, feel appreciated. And as your pastor, I appreciate you. I don't have a card for you, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much for praying for us. Uh, over the last few weeks, we are, have been doing this study, exploring and responding to the biggest questions around the Christian faith. And we're doing this because we're trying to create a safe space to talk about faith and religion, not uh, online, not at a distance, but real face-to-face conversation. Uh, We're also doing this to respond to the actual questions of our community, those outside the church, not to assume that we know what those questions are, but to actually ask, what questions do you have? And we've had questions submitted all over the last couple months. And then lastly, we're doing this series to recognize that we as Christians continue to have doubts, that there's room in the Christian faith for doubt, that we will continue to struggle with doubt until we see Christ face to face in the end. And that doubt is part of our experience of walking with God. Today, we're talking about one of the most controversial aspects of Christian teaching. This is the first of of two talks on gender. And even just believing that God created women and men uh, separately and, and as distinct and different human beings is a controversial thing in our culture. And this morning we are stepping into 
Uh, one really big question and then two related questions. Number one, the big overarching question is, does Christianity have a regressive view of women? And then two questions that follow from it, does the Bible call women to be submissive? And third, does the Bible restrict women from serving in ministry? So we should have fun today. I actually like teaching on this. This is something I've been looking forward to for a while. Normally I come up with a really clever introduction to try to show you how this ancient text matters for today, uh, but I don't think I need that. I haven't written one, so this is me setting aside. This is actually just, these are my notes. I didn't write an introduction, but that's me setting aside the clever introduction. I want to take a moment to pray for us, and then we'll just dive right in to all that we have this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, that you've revealed yourself to this world, you've revealed yourself to us, that you gave us enough freedom to, to choose not you, and yet when we choose not you, you still uh, seek us out, you still come for us, you still draw us back to yourself and you, you restore us through Christ. And so, Father, we, we acknowledge all together that, that you have done an incredible work in our hearts, not because we've done anything to, to present ourselves as, as good and righteous before you, but you have just set your love on us and then sent your Son to rescue us. And so we say thank you and we praise you. And we acknowledge that because of that, we belong to you. We are yours. And so, Father, this morning uh, on a tough topic, would you be with us by your Spirit? Would you be real? Can we, can we feel your presence in, you, in this room this morning? Father, would you speak from your word uh, directly to us? Would you guard and protect my words that they would be uplifting and true and encouraging for your people? Father, would you give us soft hearts to, to receive all that you have for us this morning and, and every morning? But Father, we want to be like your son. We want to live for your glory, and so would you enable us to do that this morning. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, first question, does Christianity have a regressive or a low view of women? To look at this question, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of scriptures, not simply to start with gender, not to start with biology or psychology, but to begin where the story of the world begins, the story of God setting his love on his people and restoring them to himself. Genesis 1 and 2 is not primarily about gender, but it's where we see God's great creation and his great plan for, for all of us. Uh, to, to use the title of a Wendell Berry book, it shows us what people are for. And so when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see this image of God a God who is totally different from us, a God who is above us and, and separate from us, a God who does not need anything in himself, a God who is perfectly loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, a God who within his own being, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has everything he needs in perfect fellowship and perfect happiness and perfect peace within himself. And so therefore, when he creates, he doesn't create out of need, but he creates out of the overflow of his loving heart and presence. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
To be human is to be made in the image of this God, this God who is so much bigger than us, so much wiser than us, so much more powerful than us. We are made in his image. We, are, we have been made not because we were needed, not because we complete God, not because God was lonely, but we have been created so that we can reflect God's goodness back to him. And we live to sing praises to God of his glory. When God created, it was out of love. It says in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And so God creates and in the way he creates, it brings him satisfaction and joy and he says it's very good. But think about this, God is not male or female. Although he primarily represents himself and describes himself almost exclusively as with male pronouns throughout the scriptures. He himself is not male or female. And he could have created us in a number of different ways. He could have created us as non-sexual beings or asexual beings. Or he could have created like a dozen different genders. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Why did God choose to create men and women two genders? It can only be that this represents something that's true of him. That It can only mean that he did this in a way that would bring him the most glory. That we would reflect back to him something that's true and good and beautiful about God. In Genesis 2, we see that everything that is made, day 1, he says it's good. Day 2, it's good. Day 3, it's good. But in chapter 2, verse 18, for the first time, something is not good. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so isn't it amazing that, God, that man alone cannot fully represent God's image? In this order of creation, God stops and says, now this man by himself, this is not good. Think about it. Adam is in the Garden of Eden. He has the direct presence of God. He has all the animals, all creation. He's in this beautiful place. It seems like he has everything he needs. And yet God says it's not good. And so God gives him this, this gift, something that will complete him, something that will represent the image of God more fully. And if you think about it, this is sort of an early version of, of the gospel, a little glimpse of things to come, that something would be good and then it becomes not good, but God intervenes and it becomes very good. That's sort of like gospel gem number one from Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. God is bringing about something that is very good. We also have in this one verse the, the first challenging statement because the woman is called a helper suitable for him. This word helper, it's often described or translated as strong helper, and there's not really an equivalent English word for the Hebrew word that exists. Almost every time this word is used throughout the scriptures, it's actually referring to God. God is our strong helper. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help in time of need. So in the original Hebrew, this is not a derogatory word. Now, second, I want you to also see that this creation mandate that comes at the end of chapter one be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over everything rule over all this earth i want you to see and i want us to notice as a people that that creation mandate or it's sometimes called the cultural mandate it's only given after the creation of the woman 
So this mandate is not given to man to, to rule over the earth and to fill it and subdue it and multiply everything. He can't do that. It's only after God creates woman and then to the man and the woman together that he gives this creation mandate. Jen Wilkin, an author that I really like on this topic, she says, since the creation mandate was given only after the creation of woman, we know that the contributions of women are not nice afterthoughts to the mission of God. They're essential and indispensable to the mission of the church. What's clear from, from the very moment of creation is that there is this intimate connection between man and woman, between Adam and Eve. Eve is taken from the very rib of Adam. From one flesh they come. But notice also in chapter 1, verse 24, or chapter 2, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So there it is again. Man and woman come from one flesh. In marriage, they are returned to one flesh. And what this is all going to point us to is this one flesh reality that we have in Christ. We begin to see that, that marriage is an illustration of God's saving work in our life through Christ, that he makes us one with his son, one flesh with Christ. We call it union with Christ in the faith. And so this one flesh reality, it's the only thing that could accurately represent our relationship to Christ. And so that's gospel gym number two, if you're keeping track. What I want you to see from Genesis 1 and 2 is that it's a creation of men and women together that demonstrates the gospel. The New Testament will go on and affirm this and show that, that marriage is, in fact, an illustration. It's an incredibly important relationship on this earth, but it is a relationship that points to the true, great relationship. Marriage itself is not the greatest relationship, capital G, capital R, but our relationship to Christ is that greatest relationship. At the end of time, the, the finale of this life and this world, the illustration is gone and finally the substance is here and our, our recreation, our new creation, the final glorious finish of all things is a wedding, the wedding of Christ as groom and his church as the bride. All of this is pointing us to the gospel, to our need for Christ, to our one flesh future with Christ. And so that brings us back to the original question, does Christianity hold a regressive or a low view of women? And what I want to suggest today, and I've mentioned it before, is that Jesus' Christianity has the highest view of women, of any religion, any system of thought, any community. When we look at the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we see a vision of womanhood and of men manhood that goes beyond anything our world can offer. It's more satisfying, it's deeper, it's truer. It brings about more happiness and joy in life than anything else in the world. Jesus' view towards women was, was shocking in that day, in a, in a day where women were literally consider, considered second-class citizens. Jesus uses parables all the time to praise women's faithfulness. In fact, whenever there's a, a parable or an example, almost every time when there's a man and a woman in the illustration, the, the favor goes towards the woman in the parable. In Luke 7, Jesus is eating with the male religious leaders and a woman comes in off the street and he welcomes her. He praises her. 
And then he rebukes the men for not accepting her as well. When a man and a woman are caught in adultery in John 8, Jesus defends her until every last accuser is gone. In Luke 10, we see Mary functioning like a disciple. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, the teacher. She's sitting right there with the disciples and she's learning and she's growing and she's responding to Jesus as a disciple. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her and tell her to go help in the kitchen. She rebukes Martha and says that Mary has chosen the right thing. In Matthew 19, Jesus protects women from their husbands, divorcing them and leaving them destitute. At the cross, we see that it was only women who remained with Jesus at the moment of death. And at his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to the women. No one holds a higher view of women than Jesus. In Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin also demonstrates how historically Christianity has honored, elevated, and defended women. Christian women were essential to the abolitionist movement in 1851, Sojourner Truth Speech for Women's Rights. It was rooted in this story of Mary and Martha. The original feminist movement of the 1920s, which allowed women the right to vote in our country, it was championed by Christian women acting from their faith. Even in modern times, it's the spread of Christianity in China that's largely due to women sharing their faith, going where men cannot, leaving their homes to share the gospel and spread the good news across China. And I've said before that Jesus has a higher view, a more complete view, a more life-giving view of women than anything else in the world, including our modern secular feminism. If you think about it, secular feminism, when it's, when it's disconnected from Christian principles, it has not been successful in, in showing that it actually serves women better. In fact, for women, having multiple sexual partners has been linked to lower happiness. Cohabitation, living together before marriage, actually leads to higher rates of divorce. Meanwhile, marriage has been correlated to long-term happiness, and then long-term singleness has been higher more highly correlated to happiness than divorce. And so if you think about it, secular feminism, it doesn't merely teach the equality of women. It wants to to liberate them completely from any law or religion or relationship. And in doing so, it's actually just promoted casual sex and commitment-free relationships. It has a low view of parenting. It's increased the divorce rate. And so in the end, it's done more to damage women than anything else. So I want to suggest that Jesus honors, elevates, and defends women far more than any other system of thought, religion, or community in the world. And any Christianity that doesn't honor and defend and promote women is not Jesus' Christianity. Now you might say, well, what about the rest of the Bible? Second question, does the Bible call women to be submissive? Ephesians 5 is the main passage in question, and that's the one that was read and is in your bulletin. And there are two statements that frame Paul's teaching to women and men. First, verses 1 and 2. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then the second statement is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And so the context of Paul's words is this, this life of love in response to what God has done in our hearts. A life of fully submitting ourselves to Christ and his kingdom. A life of laying down our own wants and desires, our own sense of rights and submission and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And most of us, we, we do struggle with total submission to Jesus, the fact that we would give our entire lives to Christ, and yet I think we also know that that's what's asked of us in our religion. In Christianity, we're asked to give ourselves fully to Christ. And yet the question remains, in Paul's words that are so controversial, does this mean that women are to be submissive at all times? In verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now first of all, I think something that's important to recognize is that Paul is addressing wives and husbands. He's not addressing all women everywhere and all men everywhere. There's no command for all women to follow or submit to all men in the scriptures. You might still say, isn't it still regressive or oppressive for for wives to submit to their husbands at all? And I think the only way to understand this is by looking at the call to the husband as well. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say wives submit and then husbands lead. He says husbands love. It's still Christ that leads, but the husband is to love. And the husband's to love as Christ loves the church. And how does he do that? Paul says he gave himself up for her. He laid down his life. He gave up everything. He died for us. He suffered for us. There's no way to read these words and then let husbands use them to to hold power and responsibility and misuse that power and responsibility over their wives. What this does is it leads us back to the gospel and Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, she says, if the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. The only way to enter is flat on your face, male or female. If we grasp at our right to self-determination, we must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. And that's gospel gem number three. None of us come in with our rights. We come in on our faces in complete submission to Christ. For the wife, this means submission to her husband is to the Lord. For the husband, it means submission to Christ by loving, sacrificing, and laying down his life for his wife. Now, Paul is not teaching sort of traditional 1950s roles. He's not teasing out exactly what this should look like. He's not saying that women are more naturally submissive and therefore they are to submit. He's not saying wives can't work outside the home, can't earn more than their husbands. He's not teaching male privilege in any sense. 
Instead, Paul is calling us all, even if we're not married, to cut down pride, to pay attention to the character and the sacrifice of Christ. And I want to remind you again that Jesus and Paul are not calling all of us to marriage as if it is the greatest relationship in all of life. The greatest relationship in all of life is our relationship to Christ himself. And so if you're like me, that takes a little bit of the pressure off. If you're married, you can have some of the pressure released that this is not the relationship that is most defining for you. If you have struggled and stumbled in your marriage, what's true of you in Christ is what matters. If you're single, this takes the pressure off as well, that you are not missing out on the greatest relationship in life, but you can have the greatest relationship in life alongside everyone else, and that's Christ. Jesus and Paul themselves were not married, but the illustration of marriage points us back to the gospel over and over again. This one flesh union to Christ, that's what it's all pointing towards. Now, number three, does the Bible restrict women from serving in ministry? This is something I've wrestled with a lot over the last few years. It's funny, when I, was, uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a church, charismatic vineyard kind of church. Uh, I don't remember them ever teaching on uh, submission in marriage. We had female pastors and teachers. That was just normal for me. I was part of a interdenominational campus ministry where men and women served alongside each other, both served as teachers. Uh, and so that was my sort of original uh, exposure to Christian ministry. And then I went to a seminary that was far more conservative. And it almost pictured submission as like the, the essence of womanhood. That to be a, a woman was simply to, to sort of rotate around your husband's life and work and his world. There are many of my sort of colleagues and other students in that in that uh, seminary and, and in different traditions that believe that the Bible calls all women to submit to all men and that women are even second class to men spiritually. Now, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm not a guy that likes to step into conflict like whatsoever. I'm very conflict averse. Uh, and so I joined staff of, of an incredible church. And for me, I was kind of able to just get around having to really take my own stance on anything because I was just like, I'm just a guy. I just work here. I'm just teaching what the church teaches, you know, take it up with whoever's above me. And then when we started to talk about church planning and, and coming home and starting Trinity, this is one of those things I realized I really need to firm up what I believe about this. I mean, we could do anything as a, as a church when you're sitting there kind of like with a blank word document trying to write out the vision and doctrines of the church. You're like, this isn't dangerous at all. And a Bible. And a Bible. But in that moment, I had to realize, you know, there are two major views within Christianity that I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But I realized no matter what, people are going to feel uh, offended or people are going to feel left out or neglected. People might become judgmental. And so for me, I, I had to enter a season of really studying the scriptures, figuring out what I believed, reading things on both sides, both viewpoints. And so that I could hopefully lead in, in a humble and an honest way here. There are more than just two schools of thought within Christianity on this, but in general, uh, because this is hopefully a 30, 35-minute sermon and not like a 75-minute sermon, 
the two main categories are what we call complementarianism and then egalitarianism. So maybe you've never heard of those words before and that's okay. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you that this is not the first thing that you need to make a decision on uh, when it comes to Christianity. This is sort of an internal house discussion for us as believers. And I almost didn't want to teach on it at all because of that, but I realized that for a lot of ladies outside the church, they look in and they see some of these doctrines and they want nothing to do with the church and with Jesus at all. And so I do think it's helpful to bring some clarity here. The view called complementarianism believes that women and men are created equally in God's image, but for complementary roles in the home and the church. Egalitarian believes that women and men are created equally and without distinction in roles and responsibilities, including the home and the church. And again, these are sort of the broad categories, and we could teach on this for a long time. I'm happy to do that anytime. But I want us to see as Christians that there is, there is freedom here. There are believers that, that hold both positions. There are, there are people that I love on, on both sides of this, uh, this sort of doctrinal issue. And at Trinity, I want to be a place of, of firm conviction where there's biblical certainty that, that Christ is the only way of salvation. That's a firm biblical truth. And yet where there are, are multiple viewpoints within the church, I want us to be a place of, of charity, of curiosity, of, of listening, and of serving one another. And as I've pressed into the scriptures, I've engaging these major works, I, I do believe that the scripture teaches that men and women are created equally, but with complementary roles in the home and the church. And yet as I, as I look at that, when I look at the egalitarian viewpoint, I, I don't see that it comes directly from scriptures. Personally, I don't see that that's the scriptural view. And yet at the same time, I look out at most of what I've seen in, in complementarianism and I can't identify with the practice either. I can't identify with the fact that it's been used to, to hurt women and, and oppress and, and slight women and then exclude women in the ways that it has. And so I feel a little bit like we've ended up in, in this third way that, that the sides are both right, the sides are both wrong. But a true complementarity what we believe here, it doesn't have to be identified with misuses in the past. It's not 1950s stereotypes. It's not telling women where to go and what box to fit into. But it's a way of bringing women into the flourishing that God intended for them. Here at Trinity, we want to elevate, and we have elevated women to roles of deacons and small group leaders, counselors. Our leadership team is uh, it consists of Casey and I as the two pastors, but also of three women and two other men. When we started the church, our leadership team actually had more women than men on it. And that's not just to say that we did it, but it's official positions of leadership that help to guide and, and serve and protect the church, to bring a more full view and perspective on church leadership. What I envision at Trinity is what could be called a blessed alliance between women and men serving side by side in their God-given roles and responsibilities both laying down their rights, both laying down their pride, both seeking to, to humbly serve Christ because this church belongs to him and not to us. And if this means, which, which it might, that it sort of upsets people on, on both sides, the egalitarians because we don't hold to their viewpoint and the complementarians because we don't do it the way that they do it, I think that's fine. 
I'm not too concerned about it. My greatest concern is, is how we practice this in the church. Not even the doctrines themselves, but, but what kind of practice does this lead to? I think what's at stake here is, is incredibly important. What's at stake is the flourishing of a body of people. What's at stake is, is our own happiness and, and well-being in our marriages, in the church, and broader society. What's at stake is the effectiveness of the local church, the training of young people to live into their images as God's image bearers, male and female. And so if I could just close with a few words first to women, to the ladies here. I want to acknowledge that the traditional interpretation of manhood and womanhood has often been used to, to hurt and oppress and neglect women in the church. And I desperately want to avoid that. I think of my own wife and how much I love her and there is nothing in the world that I want more than her flourishing. And if I have a responsibility for that, which the scriptures clearly teach that I do, that I'm to lay down my rights, my desires for her, for her good, then I want to give my life as a living sacrifice through Christ, but through serving her. In the same way, it's how I view my role as a pastor. It's not one of, of unchecked power. It doesn't mean I get to do or teach whatever I want. It's a role of sacrifice. It's a responsibility of studying and, and teaching what's true and, and good and beautiful to equip and, and protect and to serve you. And for you ladies, I want you to know that this is a safe place for you. And we want to see you thrive because we genuinely love you. And we want to see you stepping in to the church fully. We want to see you stepping into these positions of leadership. We don't want the, the only exposure for young people seeing vibrant female leadership to be in the kids' ministry. We want our young women and our girls, as well as our young men and, and our three boys, we want them to be able to see vibrant female leadership in the church beyond age 10. And we see so many of you doing that, serving in, in groups, serving on Sundays, serving in worship and in liturgy, serving on the leadership team. This is a much-needed witness to our young people. And then lastly, maybe a, a word to the men. I wish I could do a whole message on, on manhood because I think it's been done mostly poorly, at least from what I've seen over the years in the church. A man is not a man because he is physically strong or forceful in his words or his action. He's not a man because he's, he has masculine hobbies. He's not a man because he dresses in a more rugged way. We actually have a vision of perfect manhood in the scriptures, Jesus Christ. This Jesus who lived in obscurity and, and served his family. This Jesus who cared for his mother, cared for his sisters, cared for his female friends as well as his brothers and male friends. This Jesus who elevated women around him, who healed their sicknesses and cried alongside them. This Jesus who didn't view them as bodies to exploit, but God's image bearers to protect and to serve, for whom we lay down our lives. And this is the perfect man. 
He's silent when it's time to be silent. He uses strong words when it's time to use strong words. He's a perfect example of truth and grace. We see his love for children. We see his patience. We see his friendships. We see his, his tireless work. And one last time, this points us all back to him. It points us back to the gospel, what's most true about Christianity. Why would God create women and men at all? It's to show us how much he loves us. What he has done to to set us free, to restore him to himself. That our union with Christ is a real one flesh reality. That we are in Christ and that marriage represents that. The creation of women and men represents that in a way that nothing else could. And just as we as husbands try and and fail to lay down our lives for our wives, Christ has given up his life in the perfect way. The pressure is off us trying to get it right because Christ has fully and completely laid down his life for us. And so today Jesus says, come, come to me. Come you who are broken and and weary. Come you who have been hurt. Come you who have felt set aside and oppressed. Come to me. Reminded that Jesus was with his disciples and he kept pointing them back to their deeper realities. Taking bread on the night of the Last Supper, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. There is no other way of our salvation except his own body broken. Taking the cup, he said, this cup is the cup of salvation, which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It was only through the shedding of his blood, his great sacrifice, that our sins can be forgiven before a holy father. So in a moment, if you're a believer, I want to invite you to come forward. You can break off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. The wine is marked by twine. But as you do so, remember Christ's sacrifice for you, his love for you, that he has given everything for you. Let's pray.